This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, Triple R listeners. Can you believe it's the first Sunday in July? Can you believe it's just 13 degrees outside? Can you believe we've carefully planned this show to warm you up and get you through winter? If the answer is no, I don't blame you, because careful planning is obviously not our forte, as you can tell, because I don't know what I'm talking about, as usual, but I can tell you this much. I am Dr Doolittle, and it's my pleasure to introduce the panel this morning. To begin with, we have a special guest. I always say it with such joy. I love special guests. Sue Collins is an oncology nurse and the manager of the Haematology and Oncology Ward at the Alfred Hospital. She's joining us to chat about what it's like working in a cancer ward. How does she cope? How do the patients cope? What are the stresses? What are the rewards? This This is pretty much a follow-on, actually, from about six weeks ago, five, six weeks ago, we had a similar topic, and it was so interesting. A lot of people asked us about, you know, more about what the workings were like of the ward, so we've invited Sue to talk about it. Also new to this show, we've got another new guest, everyone, so hold on to your hats. You know, don't stand up, you'll faint. Two new people at once is Dr. Stem Cell. Now, Stem Cell is an associate professor of haematology at a major Melbourne hospital. He is known for his keen intellect and incisive reasoning. When I say known, that's what I know you for. Um, he's a half scientist, half clinician, like a hybrid. But this morning, he's a full radiotherapist. And happy first show to you, Stem Cell. We'll get to you in a sec. Finally, we have our most trusted climate warrior and psychologist, Dr. Eva Green. Eva has some startling depression news. Trust me, it's startling. Plus some thoughts on what it all means in the scheme of things. Sort of science meets philosophy, meets clinical work, and introduces them to her friends, psychobabble and biobabble. Does that make sense? (laughs) Stay tuned, our fine feather Triple R listeners. There's quite a bit in store today. Let's start with you, Eva. How are you, Eva? I'm very well, thank you, Dr. Doolittle. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I struggled with all that. There's, a, in fact, let me mention this. There's a whole lot of um, traffic chaos outside the Triple R studios. Um, did you struggle with it to getting in? Thanks to your text message, I I didn't. So I went west. I headed west, and then I headed east. Nice work, Stem Cell. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Doodle. I think we'll call you Stemmy for sure. I think that's much more trendy sort of name. You need to be trendy. You need to be trendy. Hey, and uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit about stem cells and stem cell transplants, seeing you chose that name later in the show. But let's have a lo- say hello to our special guest, Sue Collins. Sue, g'day. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, you've got an English accent. Surprise. I love it when we get guests with English accents because, you know, I get to try and mimic you. Apparently it's very calming. Yeah, I think, actually, I, I get that already. Perfect for Sunday morning. Yeah, Sunday morning. Doolittle's already slowed down. I know. I feel peaceful all of a sudden. Yeah, no, it's not working. Okay, let's get on with business. What are we starting with? Who's, has anyone got any catch-up or is it just me for a bit of, a bit of um, catch-up news? Did you bring any, Eva? I was going to raise that it's Sleep Awareness Week starting from tomorrow, yeah. uh, and then I didn't look into it, so that's as far as I got. Yeah, I, that was partly because you um, flagged Sleep Awareness Week to me, and I said, oh, every week there's another <laughs> week that we're celebrating. Every day is International Day. And really, sleep, while sleep is important, has anything new happened in sleep in the last thousand years? You know, we know get eight hours if you can, seven hours if you can't get eight hours. I, I, I do like to do my research going back to a thousand years, and, and no, I've got no idea. I haven't looked into it. There's a whole lot of sleep um, <laughs> scientists out there right now swearing at the radio. Yeah. Feel free to, uh, te- in fact, free, feel free to jump on our radio on our Facebook page, um, Sleep Scientists, and abuse me there. Our Facebook page is called Radio Therapy at Triple R. In fact, if anyone's got any comments during the show, feel free to chuck them on, and uh, if necessary, if <laughs> if they're not over abusive we'll read them out now i did i did bring a little bit of catch up this was from the news what did i get it from the age on june the 20th and it was about and this sort of um links into something we're going to talk about later in the show and it's about alcohol related injuries in young women women skyrocketing and uh, they, they it was a study looking at essentially people who um fronted up to hospitals mainly for emer- through emergency departments by the look of it and looking at the number of alcohol-related injuries. So any injuries related where alcohol was one of the key factors, so trauma or people turning up drunk and needing help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the increase in the number of women was about a 44% increase compared to the men over the same time, 30%. And it led to some, um, some uh, social researchers talking about why that might be so. 
who wants to start having some guesses? I love it when we play. It's like, I like turning radiotherapy into a quiz show. You know, everything <laughs> should be a quiz show. Life should be a quiz show. Okay, start guessing, team. I'll just have a sip of my coffee. Mm-hmm. Are women just embracing the... the who knows? The I, alcohol just, culture, I, is that I'm what not, you were going to say? Sure. No, 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 no. I was going to say the risk-taking within them. Oh, right. Oh. Finding their inner, um, inner risk-taker. Yep. I think it's the um, people having more cocktails. It's hard liquor. Hard liquor, you reckon? Hard liquor. Having more hard liquor on board and you do more stupid things. Getting up on tables and falling off them and dancing, I think. Okay, I'm listening to those. They're not, they're not um, ringing any bell. Either of these answers, by the way. In fact... Stem cell, have you got anything? No, I'm, I'm a mere male. I have no idea. Mere being the operative word. Yes. Um, well, anyway, the first thing they talk about, you know, it's nothing better than doing a quiz show when no one knows the answers. Um, the first thing they talk about You could have given us multiple yeah, choice, yeah, at yeah, least. Yeah, Come okay, on. Okay. <laughs> is a, it? Uh, B, or C. Okay, the first thing is the cultural change. They say, they say that there's a lot of evidence that there's an um, increased acceptability for women to get drunk in our current culture. If you go back a couple of decades, it was frowned upon. It was considered, I don't know what, unladylike. It was considered the wrong thing to do. Whereas now, um, you know, we've got a much more equal culture and it's... it's it's far less frowned upon. Anyone can get drunk. It doesn't matter what your gender is. So that's one factor. So some of the um, breaks being taken off. Hmm. A second big thing that goes along with that is the alcohol industry's advertising. And in particular, back in the good old days, they really only... They hardly advertised to women at all. It was mm. all, Nearly all alcohol advertising was directed at men. And any alcohol advertising that was directed at women tended to be advertising around um, wine, in particular white wines, mm. whereas now they market oh, beers the and... Chardonnay. Yes. Well, now they market everything, though, to women uh, with this recognition that the culture's changed and there's this big market out there to, um, to tap into. And, um, is it mostly younger women that we're yes, talking about as well? It is, and that brings, to the, brings us to the third fact, which is disposable income. Mm. Back in the old days, less women had um, disposable income. They were less likely to be working. They were more likely to be looking at after the household budget and spending their money on other things. Now there's many, many more, obviously, young women who are working, who are independent, with higher disposable income, and those factors have combined. What about the culture of binge drinking? Since that, has that increased over the decades? Yeah, it, well, I think that is very dependent on country by country, mm. definitely in Australia. Mm. Um, whilst we have heaps of problems with alcohol, um, a lot of our pattern is binge drinking. So we have a lot of people who don't really drink every day of the week, but they get when they do drink, they drink to excess. And that's when the cocktails and the dancing on tables comes in. You know, they really hit it hard, and then they run into your problems related to binge drinking. But um, they tend to hold it together during the week. It becomes one of our problems. Now, I'm sure this discussion is probably putting a lot of our listeners off drinking because who wants to end up in emergency? But I'm also very mindful that it's uh, dry July and it might be triggering some people to want to have a drink that that can't. It is dry July. In fact, that is good segue, even though... That's who can talk about it later, but, that is, oh. but you are a step ahead of the game, Eva. Premature? You, I, no, but Eva. it's like I consider you like a clairvoyant <laughs> of radio. And so that is so good. But why don't we mention it now? Let's just go with the flow. Dry July. It is dry July. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it, Sue? Are you in the um, mind space to talk about it already? Well, hopefully I won't be visiting the hospital this month because I'm doing dry July for the Alfred. Yep. Um, it's a campaign that we're... Uh, doing for the second year running. Last year um, we raised over $120,000. We'd really love people to sign up to the campaign Dry July at um, dryjuly.com.au and the money that we raise from there goes towards um, improving um, the facilities for cancer patients at the Alfred Hospital. Well, I did Dry July last year. Yeah. Um, so I'm somewhat of an expert on it too. You can, the thing I like about Dry July, so Dry July, there's a whole lot of these months now, and there's obviously FebFast as well, and there's various others, and they raise money for different causes. And Dry July was set up to raise money around cancer. That's why we've invited someone from cancer, if it's you, Sue Collins. Um, and uh, the beauty of it is you can put your money towards any local cancer institute, any local cancer charity. And so when you jump on their website, you pick it. And so, you know, whether you're in Queensland and you want to, you know, 
put it to your local Bundaberg Cancer Service, you can, you know, you can. Um, and the Alfred in Melbourne run a big campaign around Dry July. And I, I gather their message is essentially, you know, if you want to do Dry July and you're not sure what charity to do, jump on board with Alfred. And I think last year they had about 600 to, a, 600 to 800 odd people signed up for Dry July and they raised, yeah, over 120,000. They did, and you don't actually have to be um, partaking of uh, not having a drink. You can just support us and, and jump online. Really? Yeah. Oh, so as you support someone else, you don't yeah. take part yourself. Yeah. If you take part yourself, you raise money, yeah? Yeah. I like, and I like that idea. Some of the things I think that you could probably do is maybe have a night in, one of those nights you wouldn't, you'd normally buy a bottle of wine. Maybe that might be money that you would donate to the to Dry July campaign. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're going to go out and fall over and hurt yourself and you're one of those people that might have been visiting the Alfred. Some of us don't need alcohol for that. <laughs> okay, so maybe, you know, putting some money towards the campaign will, next time you need to uh, fall over off the table because you've had a bit too much to drink, um, you know, a bit of payback, a bit calmer. Yeah. Why did you know why Dry July, why the cancer services, why Dry July and Cancer Elite? I think it's just a way to, uh, I don't, I think it... I'm not really sure, Because they're different actually. messages. You know, one's... Yeah. yeah. One's alcohol. You know, Dry July's about giving up alcohol. I think the link is meant to be about wellness and the importance of taking control of um, your bad habits every once in a while. And it's not It's not meant to be that alcohol has a particular link to cancer. Oh, I think no. the general link is wellness. Do something to support yourself, to, which then supports other people who are suffering from cancer. I think that's meant to be. Mm. And I think most people have a little bit of a teetotal month or a detox month, and, you know, this is a good time and to get on board with a good foundation. And I must say it does help having that commitment there. I've done a dry month, but I didn't do it in dry July. It was just something that I thought, oh, everybody else has tried this alcohol-free month. I better give it a go. And it it really did help having that commitment there that you're actually uh, in those moments of weakness when you just want to have a glass of wine. You can return to that commitment and it just gets you through. And I think the idea that everyone else is doing this as well, that you're not alone, I think uh, makes it even more successful. And I think the clever thing that they've done is they know we all have a moment of weakness or we're getting fighted along to a party that we know what's going to happen. So you can buy a golden ticket. So you can get out of it for yeah, a night. Yeah, what's that about 25 bucks, isn't it? About 25 it? bucks. And yeah. it means that, you know, you can still have those occasional What does uh, 25 drinks? bucks buy you? So that buys you the golden ticket. So you donate an extra 25 bucks and you get a pass for that night and you can drink. How many? How many <laughs> drinks? Yeah. yeah, as much as you like just <laughs> for that night. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, is that not encouraging binge drinking? <laughs> well, my birthday's in July, so that's why last year I bought one too, um, in, in case anyone's wanting to a send, birthday without any alcohol. send gifts. <laughs> How many tickets did you buy? Yeah. <laughs> I just bought 31, which seemed to last me quite nicely for the month. Uh, why do they have to pick a month with 31 days on? I as well? well, that was why that, the FedFast used yes. to be because it was the shortest month. But, I th- you know, look, I actually... The other thing I think is good about it is a lot of us, um, at various times, our alcohol consumption just sneaks up a little bit and it, and it takes you by surprise. And that's why I did it last year primarily. I was at a... You know, I'd had a really busy period for about six months and I'd noticed that I'd got to the stage where I was having one or two drinks every night when I got home. And I thought, oh, that, you know, I really need to take a month off because it's, you know, it's just sneaking up to that point where I'm thinking, oh, I'm a, you know, when I was getting drunk on the weekends occasionally, you know, for my son who might be listening you know once a year um uh, you know i'd find i'd drink even more so taking that month off i found it really useful just to you know remind myself that i could and reset the level i drink at and then i went back to just drinking what about first of august first of august yeah well, what what would be the the very subtle the very subtle cumulative effects of one drink a night what would they be you know the nhmrc the national health and medical research council mm. changed the have changed the limits a few times over the last couple of decades and Currently, um, I forget what the current is, but it's pretty low. It's like two drinks a night for men and I think one for Mm -hmm. women. It's about half. Um, And... and they've for many years talked about a safe level of drinking, saying that below that is a safe level of drinking. And you might also recall there are a number of, number of studies over the last decade, in the last three or four decades, saying small amounts of alcohol were helpful in various ways. They had, you know, a small amount of alcohol had some slight benefits for your heart, some slight benefits in other areas. Um, I think some of those studies have now been overturned, mm. and some of the researchers in the alcohol industry, I'm not one, you know, I'm not in that industry, but some of the researchers are now saying that there's, pro- there's possibly not a safe level of drinking, mm. a bit like smoking, but low levels of drinking are relatively harmless. Mm. Um, and of course, 
the, you know, the alcohol, the alcohol scientific community has been arguing for a long time sure. that we have to have much greater controls on alcohol mm. and that it's by far our most dangerous drug, that it totally eclipses anything like ice, heroin, mm. all the other amphetamines, every other drug, and marijuana. It eclipses mm. all the problems mm. and it easily does in hospitals. Mm. You know, something like 30% mm. of our presentations have some alcohol-related thing, mm. whereas, you know, ice, is up to, uh, ice that we're supposedly in an epidemic mm. is up to about 2% of our pre- presentations. Do you think it'll be like smoking? That's what I was what thinking. Like now? Yeah. Well, I, this 10, is the debate. Years? The alcohol science community often argues that it should be treated exactly the same and we should be doing everything to ban advertising and doing all the same sort of stuff. Of course, alcohol is an incredible part of our culture and, of course, is an incredible part of our tax base. Mm. And so there's ne- and so they argue same that, as cigarettes. Though. Well, cigarettes yeah. was originally, and people argued the same thing that yeah. you couldn't cut yeah. it. And the reason cigarettes got up in the end was because the scientific community put up a lot of strong economic arguments that by cutting back cigarettes, sure we'll lose some taxes, but we'll save a fortune in health costs. Mm. And they proved that in the long run. And so, and mm. governments all over the world bought it, and it's worked. Mm. But alcohol is a much stronger, much trickier because you know it is such an integral part of our culture. Can you imagine telling Aussies? That, you know, the screams of nanny state would be so loud. The roofs we, we, would we could fly have off. dry, ju- dry year. Yeah, dry year. <laughs> Let's all take 2020 off. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. And our special guest in the corner, politely at her microphone, at the ready, is Sue Collins. Now, Sue is the nurse manager of the, of the basically the cancer service at the Alfred Hospital. So she's the uh, manager of the ward that includes all the people who've got haematology problems, oncology problems, anything else to do with cancer. And uh, obviously the link was partly dry July, but we also wanted to follow up on some talk we had a couple of weeks ago about this, um, it was about a month ago now, about, you know, what it's like. And particularly the thing that really triggered it for me was, and I think I told you this, Sue, when I met you, um, when I, you know, spoke to you the other day about this, um, you know, I hear this anecdote all the time. I was sitting in the pub at uh, my usual Rye RSL um, with my dad. During dry July? No, this was about two weeks ago. And uh, someone came up to me and said, oh, you know, we, you know, we, hear your Cliffy son, it's my dad's always at the Raya cell, or hear your Cliffy son, and uh, we hear you work at the Alfred. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And they said, oh, what a place, what a place, what a place. Um, you know, my daughter's got cancer, and the nurses up there are absolutely wonderful. They know everything about her, they know her by name, they hug her, and they both started, you know... <laughs> I won't, you know, they they were almost tearing up because she was still being treated for cancer. I think, in fact, she had leukaemia um, stem cell. And, uh, um, and you know, they just talked about how that link was so important. And they sat down with me for quite a while and, you know, explained, you know, the whole thing and just how grateful they were. And, uh, you know, and I constantly hear in the media about all the medical advances and stuff. And, and you know, Dry July, being around those things like the supports and the environment and all those things that the money gets raised for, I just thought it was, you know, it's such an important message. So um, why don't we start off, Sue? You know, what is your story? How did you get into this area of nursing? I always wanted to be a nurse and um, I never had a particular um, thing that happened to me and wanted me to be a nurse. I just really always wanted to help people. And I managed to get a job on a cancer ward. And what really drew me to that type of nursing is the relationships you build with your patients. It's not a very fast turnover of patients. It's getting to know them and their families and them returning back and just really feeling like you're making a difference. When, when, how long ago did you get into it? Did you train in England Nearly or Australia? Nearly 20 years ago. Yeah, I trained in England and I've been in Australia for nine years at the same ward at the Alfred absolutely love it uh, working with cancer patients and um, people that have the same passion as me but the, see the reason I ask about what got you into it in particular is because the commonest thing I hear when people talk about it is oh can you imagine how hard it would be working there and I always think the young nurses and because I know when I was a young doctor you, when you get told you're going to work in a cancer service you sort of your first weeks you approach with trepidation it has this sense of fear did you ever have that I didn't, and um, again, I was saying to you earlier, um, you go to a dinner party, you're out for a drink, and people say, oh, you work on a cancer unit, oh, that must be so depressing or sad, and actually, it's far from it. Um, We really make a difference for our patients, feel like family when they 
come in, they spend so much time with us. Average length of stay is 10 days up to three months. And then they could have treatment up to two years. And you really invest in your patients and making sure that their experience is the best. And that relationship um, with their families is so important to support the family and the patient. And as a nurse, you know, we we get a lot out of giving you know mm. that's what that's what drives us mm. you know or people that want to really make a difference and so you know um cancer patients really really are really vulnerable and really need you and you know if you can make a little bit of difference in their visit in their stay in their treatment um it, it's a really good feeling so so would would you call it a friendship or, or is it a working relationship? It's a, a therapeutic relationship. Obviously, you know, you've got to have some resilience as a nurse working in cancer. You've got to protect yourself a little bit. And, um, but it's a professional, but it's, a, it's a, a real relationship where you do have feelings and care for your patients. Mm. And, yes, it is sad at times, but most of the time you're having a laugh. You're having a cuddle. You're, they're coming back and visiting the ward. Um, you know, it's that they're in the fight of their lives. How important do you think that that therapeutic relationship is uh, in terms of response to treatment? Uh, massive. Um, I know myself when we have um, patients that don't have a family support. Um, don't do as well you know and so we have to be that support whilst they're with us and um, and you know i've got lovely nurses on the ward really young nurses and there'll be things like going and getting a little you know valentine's card for somebody who's in hospital for the wife or their 10 year anniversary you know just making those little things maybe getting a balloon for the wife and some flowers just being just being involved in the life outside of the ward, just helping in those little ways. And very thoughtful and compassionate. In terms of, I, I can, I'm just thinking in terms of training, how often we get trained in the practicalities of a job uh, and less so in how to build a therapeutic relationship and how to engage someone in, in that kind of way. What kind of, is this something that's fostered within the ward that um, is, is learnt or cultivated or is it just something that comes naturally? I think it's a culture of culture of the ward, the way we like to nurse, um, the way that you want to come back the next day because you do get this um, sense that you are making a difference. And I do have a lot of young nurses that come into the nurse and they've picked the area and they're really excited to come into cancer because they want that therapeutic relationship. And really, um, sometimes they just haven't got the resilience when they're first in in that job and it's a lot of talking a lot of responsibilities a nurse manager and my senior staff to make sure we're looking after our staff that they know what the barriers are they know how to look after themselves and you know don't rely on things like alcohol you know when they go home to to you know de-stress mm. you know we look after each other and it's about knowing that um, at the end of the day, you, you get to go home. You, you're not living with this disease. Mm. But whilst you're at work, do everything you can to make the difference for that person. Mm. Do you have, like, a specific program to train the young nurses? I wonder, too, because we had a, um, a guest on a couple of weeks ago from the Resilience Project, which people can look up on the net or on their Facebook page, um, talking about training people, in particular young people, and they were training sporting clubs and stuff, to develop resilience and I wonder in particular with the young nurses because when you know the people who've been there a while two things happen one they get used to it but two there's natural selection the mm. ones who find it really tough move on to other areas and so I sometimes think as senior people in the department you sometimes don't remember the stresses because you know even though you've had the training it's possibly also that there's some natural selection going on and you stayed because that was the bit that suited you and so it can be hard to remember what it's like for the broad group some of which will not find it a natural process and so you know how do you go about training the young nurses did is it all about support or is there a specific program uh we are trying to put up a specific program uh, a monthly sort of debrief and we do have external company that can come and um, help us with that counseling but a lot of it does happen in a social situation and, and supporting each other but we do sit down and talk and debrief with the younger nurses but there should be more uh, support I think around that and we are trying to build that capability 
at the Alfred, but I think I do have dropout from um, nurses that just do find it hard and can't, you know, you come into nursing and they really want to make a difference, but it can be at a cost sometimes and they just can't build that. Can I just follow up on that? Do you yeah. This is, you know, work, I've worked in psych services providing psych, you know, consults to cancer mm. services for decades. And one, one of the th- troubles we often see where we find we get lots of referrals is where a clinician, a doctor or a nurse comes in and, they've, and the patient they're treating has some link to their own history of cancer, like, for example, their mother or their father's cancer or some experience they've had themselves. And then, you know, we'll get lots of referrals around those sorts of issues. Do you find that some of your staff... Is is that an issue for you? Do you wonder about, you know, do you ask your staff to reflect on their own experiences of cancer in their friends, families and themselves? We definitely do, and um, it's really a a wealth of knowledge because they come into it at a... Uh, haven't been on the other side of the service and they really want to come in and as long as they uh, feel that they're given the best care and can give that their patients the best experience and learn from the experiences that they've had, it's real strength for them and they really um, share their experience. don't have many people that... I think when you're a young nurse and you come in and you're dealing with people with cancer, all of a sudden you might be in the shower and you're checking yourself a bit more often Mm. and um, what might happen is you might be looking after a patient that might remind you of a family member, don't even have to have cancer in your family but they just remind you of your mum or your brother and you might be holding on to those feelings and what we do tell our young nurses or anybody that's working cancer, if these feelings stay where you feel sad you're thinking about it a lot that's not normal and we need to talk a lot more about it because sometimes it's just hard and you can't sort of shift thinking about that patient when you're at home and enjoying yourself or out in a social situation and that's a problem. We do teach our nurses to recognise when things aren't normal. So, so can, do, you, do you take your work home with you? I mean, you know, I still, I still struggle sometimes with with um, looking after patients, caring for them, and, and, yeah, as you said, sometimes you have situations that remind you of that per- person. Does that sort of come back to you? you have memories of people that you've looked after? Oh, definitely. Um, I don't think you would be human if you didn't, mm. but it, I think you learn how to cope with those feelings and make sure that you know that they're, um, it, you're not going through the cancer struggle or or the diagnosis and sometimes for me how I deal with it is it makes me give my partner a bigger hug Mm. or I might feel guilty because obviously all my family's in England Mm. you know so sometimes that might make me pick the phone up a bit more often and give everybody a ring but uh, at the end of the day I try and put those energies into work. Because I guess you're faced almost every day with just the reality around the fragility of life and not just for patients but for oneself as well and it would would be completely only human to, you know, it's, it's an interesting question people often ask in working in mental health as well, do we take, how do we take, not take the work home and um, how do we cope with the you know the trauma or the stories that we hear and um and we do you do carry around the work in a bodily response in an emotional response and you know in the memory of the stories and i agree it's kind of like trying to find a way to tap not to ignore that or push it away but to process and digest it and that's where family and having debriefing with your colleagues etc can really help with that digestive process and I think it really helps me be mindful of what I have got you know and Mm. um, that I am well at the moment or you know prepares me that life is fragile and you know you need to grab every opportunity you can and when I come into work I want to share that you know I do I am emotional and I do have ke- uh, feel for my patients but you know I want to be able to turn up every day mm. year after year so it's really important that we know how to make sure we can protect ourselves so that I can give all my knowledge of 20 years mm. turn up with my staff and with my patients so mm. it's a really important thing. Mm. You know that reminds me 
too. You know, there's a famous psychiatric anecdote that we've talked about on this before that led to the beginning of existential psychotherapy. And it was all born largely around a guy called Irving Yalom in the United States. And he was a psychiatrist doing, um, doing consultation liaison psych work, so consulting to cancer services. And he found so many patients who survived the cancer process had a totally new view on life that was way more balanced. And they'd say, they'd often say to him things along the lines of, gee, I wouldn't wish cancer on anyone, but gee, having survived it, it's been one of, this sounds a bit weird, but one of the greatest things that's happened to me because it's made me appreciate what's important in life. It's made me appreciate the importance of existence and the importance of my family and the importance of this, that and the other thing. And um, so he, from that, said, well, wouldn't it be good if we could get that change in life, that new perspective, without going through cancer. And that's where existential psychotherapy came from. And do you get that from working in wards? Because I'm sort of thinking you must see a lot of people who do go through it, who do um, evaluate their life and get all those existential benefits. And I wonder if, you know, so there's all the hard bit about working in cancer, but I wonder, do you get that? those good things as well definitely and unfortunately as a cancer manager and managing a ward I have a lot of nurses that work within our area but then you know they want to go travel in the world for six months because yes. they know let's not put things off yes, yes. <laughs> you know yeah. or they want to retire early or they want to reduce their hours because they want to have more time at home and these are all important things you know so um yes definitely have a big lust for life and i think that shows uh, in their personalities and how they yeah. care with care for patients do you try and encourage the patients who have had good cancer outcomes to come back and talk to the staff and whatnot definitely and it really makes mm. a difference and they do come back they pop up they come and see us we get christmas presents uh, you know, the, seeing the doctors in clinics and outpatients. Remember, it's a long, old journey. You know, you can be coming back to the hospital for up to five years for outpatient appointments, clinics. So people do get the strength to come back on the ward. It's a hard thing because it's not always associated with really good memories. But they really make the difference. And the reason is is because they really appreciate the staff mm-hmm. and they really want to come and say thank you. Mm-hmm. And it really gives us a boost. That is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Hey, a question for you, Dr. Stemzell, because you you, um, you, were, you must have patients on this ward too, this very yep, ward, do yep, you? Yeah, yep, it's a transport what, ward. What is the, you know, I'm always fascinated by the cultural differences between the medical staff and the nursing staff. You know, when you listen to Sue talk, does it, you know, is it a similar experience to you or do you think different things when you, you know, in your, you know, from your sort of decades of working in the industry? Very, very similar. Is I it? mean, we're, you oh. know, we're human. And, and it's the same things that really um, drew me to my work is that ability to help people and to care for them. And even if, you know, the outcome is not, not ideal, uh, it's still helping them go through that process. And, and as, a, you know, an experienced uh, doctor, that's, you know, I think one of the great things is to have that, be able to share that and to, to help them through that process irrespective of the, the ultimate outcome. Because it always so strikes me, though, that the nurses, the whole focus of nursing is that whole... You know, it's... There's, everyone's onto healthcare, but nursing's sort of on the pastoral care side and they're supporting people through it, whereas medicine's sort of always more on the sciencey side, sort of, um, you know, looking at the next... Te- there's it's that subtle... Uh, do you well, see no, it, Sue, no. or is it my imagination? I think in haematology especially um, and uh, oncology, it, the... the the type of doctors that are drawn to that are very different creatures. Really? Yes. So you I think, think so. the doctors drawn to it are different to doctors in other areas in the hospital? Well, I absolutely. I've worked within haematology teams and oncology teams in England and in Australia, and the the sense of camaraderie and you know the closeness that we have as a team um, really shows that we're all there for the patient. Like it's a very different working experience. Do you reckon? I'm just. I think that's great, but. You know, funnily enough, you know, are there... Because I work, go mm. from one unit to another, consulting yeah. all over the hospitals, and some units have got that and some haven't, and it does depend a bit on the hospital, is mm-hmm. my experience. Like, at your hospital, for example, the infectious disease unit's a lot like that too. Mm-hmm. They've had HIV for years. We work close years. with them yeah. as well. And they've, they're very similar. Um, a lot of the units that are around anything statewide, like the transplant units, tend to be like that, mm. cystic fibrosis, burns. You know, units where they've got, um, you know, some particular remit 
Specialisation. It, it varies, you know, because it can just be the mood of the ward. You know, some general wards have that too, just because they've got a great leadership and they do lots of stuff together. I don't know what the magic is, but I assume it's about leadership, doing lots of things together, supporting each other, you know, but it is... And some wards don't have it, I agree. Some wards you go to and it's just hardly anyone even knows each other's names and, and it just looks... It looks chaotic, and you can almost tell walking in. I've got to tell you, mm-hmm. you can, you know, because I walk into different wards every day, and you can almost tell walking in just how it's organised, how everyone looks, you know, what sort of feel it is. Is there a cultural shift as well from a more hierarchical medical model, where there's, you know, a very definite hierarchy amongst doctors and nurses and and students? Is that shifting to a more collaborative, team based? I think it's difficult for me to comment on because I've always worked within haematology and oncology and I've never found that Mm. because it's such a specialised area that the doctors that are in that area, you know, are really... Passionate and really love that area that they work in. And um, like I say, David's um, is a scientist as well, and uh, but is absolutely um, involved with the patients, you know, daily and on the ward. And you know, scientists don't normally have that um, tag, do they, of having a brilliant. Um, Personality, sorry, David, but stem cell, you mean? Yeah, but stem, <laughs> but, but hey, all, can I ask? But yeah. he, but he's absolutely, you know, coming Don't around, keep, keep, keep Don't going, keep going, keep coming going. around on. My, okay, let's go to that now. <laughs> yeah. Actually, can I bring you into the discussion at this stage, stem cell? Seeing you've chosen the name stem cell, you know, can you give us a quick summary of what a stem cell? transplant is because we hear it all a lot more now as a treatment and i've i know a few friends who have had it and i I, and normally i pretend that i know and i'm just asking for the public but in this case i genuinely am not sure what a stem cell transplant exactly is can you explain okay well i guess you've got to start with what's a stem cell yep and it's a type of cell in the body we've got lots of them uh the ones that we work with are the ones that make all the blood cells yep so like a stem cell is like a seed that yep. grows into a plant and makes all the different things the leaves and the whatever and so they're they're pretty sort of rare cells and they live in the bone marrow mm-hmm. and they actually do circulate around in the blood as well right which is we don't really know why that is and so we can collect those stem cells from either the bone marrow or the the blood and the stem cell transplant is where we give patients um, chemotherapy, radiotherapy before uh, uh, the treatment and then we give the, the stem cells. So we collect them and uh, give them like a blood transfusion. So that's what always gets me. You know, I mean, I think of a transplant as, you know, you take the organ out and you put the new organ in. And in, well, that's what, in this case I see, so you're not so much taking the stem cells out, you're killing them in the person with cancer. Yep. You're getting rid of all their stem cells. The, the thought bone, being yeah, that the, they, yeah. those stem cells are somehow giving rise to the cancer that they've got. Yep. This is take the, all of yep. theirs <laughs> and then put in healthy but from a donor who's been carefully matched, obviously. Sure. Where, and so where do you get them from the donor? You said you can get them from the blood as well as... The, I thought you had to go into the bone marrow and we put used a to, nasty needle through their 20 bones. Years ago we, say that. Well, mm. 20 years ago, we used to They have to have an anaesthetic and collect right. them from the bone marrow, but now almost all of them are collected from the blood. And then you what, somehow spin them down so you just get the stem cells and get rid of the red blood yep. cells and the white blood cells and yep. everything else. Yep, and then we just give those back to the donor and we then uh, collect the stem cells and then just hook it up like a blood transfusion. So how many stem cells would we do in, say, you know, a big hospital like the Alfred a week now? Well, I do four uh, transplants a month, um, allografts, and four autografts as outpatients. What's an autograph? That's, isn't that, autograph? Isn't that what you are asking for after the show and you keep it and an get autograph. it so, an autograph? <laughs> so you have a transplant where you have your own cells, which is the auto, and then yeah. allo is when it's from a donor. Oh, I see. So a lot. Mm. I think we should revisit that topic in more detail at some stage because it's such a fascinating topic. Um, but I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking we've got to move on. Hey, um, you guys are going to obviously stick around and talk in the next segment as well. But thank you for coming in and talking about um, all that stuff. It's so fascinating. And the work you guys do is um, inspirational. And, uh, you know, hats off to you. Hats off. Hats off, everyone. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia.
It's Radiotherapy at Sunday morning. I'm Dr. Doolittle. Over there is Dr. Eva Green. Over there is Dr. Stem Cell. And we also have Sue Collins, our nurse. But she's taken a call. She has just jumped right into the swing of radiotherapy. She's chatting on the microphone. She's out taking a call. What a legend. Hey, we had a couple <laughs> of... Um, uh, God, we, firstly, we wanted to remind everyone, if there's anyone out there suffering from cancer and they uh, might want support, there's a heck of a lot of places you can get it. Probably the best clearinghouse is the, um, is the uh, cancer.org which is Cancer Council's website. Just go to Cancer Council and they've got a whole page on support, how to get support, all the different places. So if anything we said triggers anything for anyone, um, jump onto that website. The other text in we got was the um, wonderful Dr Capri, one of our regular um, panellists who's I think back on with us the week after next. Um, She texted in to say, you idiot, Doolittle. The guidelines for NH and MRC drinking is the same for men and women now. It's um, uh, two standard drinks a day is the safe limit and above that is the unhealthy limit. There is no gender difference anymore. Yeah. I'm stuck yeah, in the yeah, old You just gave the women. <laughs> misinformation just to engage the audience, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, yeah. purposely. Yeah. Yeah. I purposely wanted Dr Capri you, you know to those, Yeah, You know the NHMRC guidelines by heart. Yeah, I we wanted to check whether Capri was listening. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, our next topic of discussion is a little bit around uh, we wanted to talk briefly about some of the biological, there's been a couple of big biological things in depression lately mm. and doesn't mean anything for treatment, doesn't mean anything mm. yet for how we understand it. Mm. You were going to go first, Eva. I was, I was and I, I wanted to start, I guess, with a bit of a fun fact. It's probably oh, a bit more facts. of a... You know, don't facts. get too excited. It's actually probably a bit more disturbing because uh, well, as we know, depression is the most common mood disorder that we see and it was predicted by the World Health Organisation that it would be the world's second greatest source of suffering and disability by 2020, which is pretty huge. What's but the most? Actually, it's already got to second place a couple of years ago. So this is why I think it's so important that we continue talking about depression and depression and anxiety. Even though we know we we hear about it a lot and there's reduced stigma around depression, we've got to keep thinking and talking about it. So one of the... um, It's not actually that recent. It's called the information... I'm just trying to think. David's quick question in there. What's the most? What's the most? I'm trying to remember. It's either um, musculoskeletal problems, cancer or heart disease. I think it's heart disease is the most. And I think cancer was up there and musculoskeletal's up there you know for disability ongoing stress and stuff and I yeah I think that's where it's gone back pain well all of the musculoskeletal perhaps another task for an audience member anyway sorry back to you (laughs) yeah someone's up Capri text that in too that would be great so this came to mind about the information hypothesis, which is not a new hypothesis, but there was an article in the conversation just last week uh, by, and I'm going to apologise because I'm not actually sure how this name is pronounced, um, Utes Volmer Connor and Gordon Parker, uh, just last week in the conversation. And it was about the inflammation hypothesis. Uh, so after reading this one article, I'm obviously an expert in this. I'm just going to read what the inflammation hypothesis actually is. Um, and it was... It actually dates back to the 19th century uh, post-influencer depression when these ideas were beginning to come out. But it was more recently hypothesised by George Slavik, a psychologist, who hypothesised that social threats and adversity could trigger the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Is that how you pronounce cytokines? Yep. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm on a roll. And, David uh, and, and what are cytokines? Stem cells Semi. should be an expert oh, on yes. cytokines. Do you yeah. want to quickly tell us what cytokines are? Well, they're like, like hormones. They're like growth factors and stuff. And they're released um, by cells. And they're released, released by cells and they do all sorts of things. And they, they play a role in injury yeah. and infection. And, and other connections people were noticing were those uh, who were diagnosed with arthritis uh, and also those with hepatitis C who are receiving interferon treatment, which for many people we know how, how rife depression is amongst people receiving interferon treatment. Around actually 50% of those who are on high doses end up meeting the criteria for major depressive disorder, I think within around three months of receiving the treatment. So that's pretty significant. So looking into this, I came across another article back in 2011. It's called Is Depression an Inflammatory Disorder? And basically they did a, a lovely review I got a little bit lost in the article. There was lots of big medical words that my brain switched off to. But the the sum of it was that uh, that inflammation is neither necessary nor sufficient 
to cause major depressive disorder. And they speak about, well, then why is it that some people with inflammation do end up uh, being at high risk of developing depression and they're hypothesising that there might be this kind of depressive subtype and so on and so forth. But I thought I'd just raise this today because it's so alluring to have this singular cause for depression and I think, you know, it really taps into our underlying wish for a cure and a medicinal cure at that, um, which as a psychologist, I think, has a few dangers attached to it. And I thought that we could maybe discuss a bit of, a bit about that today. But I know, Dr Doolittle, you have another one that uh, was kind of published just last week as well in terms of the hippocampus. Yeah, so the one... I, I was thinking along the same lines because my one came out um, and hit lots of newspapers and it was basically... The newspaper headlines was um, people with chronic depression have small hippocampi. Hippocampus is a, um, a sort of central brain structure that's involved with long-term memory, forming new memories... And, and, and we believe connecting emotions to those memories. And so um, this study came out and with it came a lot of publicity of people, you know, jumping up and down saying, see, essentially implying, see, you know, there's a biological basis to depression and, you know, all this bad press that antidepressants get, you know, you should put it behind you because the biological basis is there. And I can see where they're coming from, but I don't think the research necessarily backs them up. Just by way of background, just so everyone wants, in case anyone wants to look it up, it was a, uh, it was a ripper study. It was, a, you know, we talk often on the show about meta-analyses where we can't get enough people. There's so many smallish studies that have a trend of a result, but nothing major. And so this, you know, this um, passion in the last, you know, couple of decades is to put all of these studies together, try and, you know, find mm. similar studies and make a, ne- a meta-analysis where we look at them. I often think of it as a medical student essay, that it's a little bit more than that, you know, putting all the studies together and analysing them. And I'm busily looking through my papers to find this one, but it was in, um, it was in the Journal of uh, Molecular Psychiatry. Just as an, you know, an aside, molecular, molecular psychiatry. psychiatry. I know, you know, funnily enough, molecular psychiatry. When it first came out, I remember thinking, oh, "I've never heard of that journal. What is it? It must be some Mickey Mouse journal." And I looked up its impact factor, and its impact impact well, factor is a measure. It's a measure of how well a journal is cited, um, which is basically a measure of how popular a journal is, how successful a journal is. And so, when people publish, they try and publish in the highest impact factor journals possible. You know, your big ones like, say, Nature. That's the biggest one in the world, I think. That's at about 55. The, and molecular psychiatry is actually the highest impact factor journal there is in psychiatry because it's the psychiatric arm of nature. Mm-hmm. And it um, has an impact factor of 14. To give you an example... because it's got molecular in it? No, it's, it's just because it's from nature. It's one of their... It's, it's under their house. And so, you know, every, every really keen scientist in the world wants to publish in molecular psychiatry. The other big ones are American Journal of Psychiatry, Archives of General Psychiatry. They're both at about 13, 14. The Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry? Have a guess. That's three point two. I won't torture you with my uh, <laughs> guessing. But anyway, so this was again in... multiple choice. Oh. Yes, little. I know. And turning radiotherapy into a quiz show. So this article was in a really big paper, and you can see why because they had heaps of people. They got all these studies together that was similarly um, similar research design, and they looked at all these brain volumes. They ended up with around about uh, nine thousand brains, where they got all the MRI data sent in to me- um, measure the um, brain volumes, and of those um, ones that were sent in, around about uh, 1700 had depression and when they put all of these together they did find you know fairly robustly there's been you know about a decade of minor studies saying this and saying we think it's the case but we don't have enough power in our scientific studies that that, that they could pretty safely say that yes the hippocampus is smaller does your hippocampus get smaller with age well it does and they control for age and they control right. for various okay. other factors yep. as well um, and uh, and um, they looked at also the effects of treatment and the effects of recurrent depression Early depression, so if your depression's relatively newly diagnosed, no difference in hippocampal volume. But if you get recurrent depression, over the years your hippocampus gets smaller. Tiny amounts, 1.25% was the difference. And, of course, normal variation in the brain is greater than that, so you Mm. can't use this as a test for an individual. We can't scan someone's head and Mm. say, have they got a smaller hippocampus? Because normal variation is far bigger than 1.25%. But what it shows us is there is some sort of neuronal loss. Mm. And And the thing that annoyed me, which comes back to your point, a little bit was all these people then jumping on board and saying, ha ha ha, depression is biological, those biological treatments. I th- Which it's is not really, 
shows. That's you know, going such, a step too far. It is. It's such a dangerous concept that we can become so preoccupied by these biological interpretations that we miss seeing the bigger picture and the bigger context because we know depression isn't a singular entity. You know, There's no one cause for depression. There are multiple factors involved and they're not equal, equally distributed either. That varies across individuals. So it's not you know, a third biological, a third psychological and a third social. It's just going to vary on so many different levels and I think we can't forget that there are a lot of uh, social forces at play too that really try to engender a biological model aka the um, medication industry that you know we're being told again and again about you know the lack of serotonin which which we know just pumping our brain full of serotonin doesn't you know get rid of depression but there's more than just you know our wish for a kind of a cure well, the way I was thinking of it, and I think it's a little bit similar to cancer these days, mm. is that there's multiple, multiple, multiple causes that can contribute to your depression. And depression is an emotion. Yeah. So you get sad. Sometimes that depression gets quite severe and we call it a disorder. It's a bit like a disease in mm. that you can it predicts for certain things. If you get to a certain level mm. of depression, it predicts certain outcomes in your life and we know certain treatments will help. Mm. But whether the treatment helps should purely be based on whether there's studies into that treatment and whether that treatment's shown to be efficacious, not what the cause of your depression is. Psychological treatments can work just as well if you think it's a biological depression as medications. There's no real split between which treatments fix which types of depression. There's multiple common pathways, and we are getting to understand the biology, but that doesn't mean that just because you understand the biology Mm. that it's a pathological process and therefore there should somehow be Mm. medication. So we're not going to have one little test, one special test. Just going to take out the hippocampi and uh, replace it with a fresh one. Right. (laughs) There's always only been one test in depression and that is are you depressed? Which is crazy because it's such a subjective concept. Anyway... um, I'm looking at the time and wondering what more do we have, how much, to, you know, I'm always checking the time. So the, <laughs> the gist of, of the whole thing from your point of view then, Eva? I, well, I think the, the gist is that when we look towards these external solutions, there's a danger, there's a danger to it. We kind of, it, it, it can feel like we're not blaming ourselves. And I think that's one of the stigma around depression is that people blame themselves for getting depressed and for having depression. And so when we find a biological cause, it kind of takes some of that, self-blame away so we've got to find a way to move past that because Mm. as soon as something's externalized we become more passive and less engaged in our own lives and And it's so important when we're depressed that's how we feel so we've got to find a way to to teach people skills so that Mm. they they learn how to engage when they feel disengaged and it's a good point because you know one of the big benefits of that disease model Mm. and calling the problem a disease like with addiction as well calling it a disease is it does help with the stigma because a lot of people understand disease but, better than they understand behaviour. But there are studies that demonstrated increases self-stigma. True, true. So. I remember you covered them on a previous show. Hey, we're going to have to wind up though because it is almost time for the scientists of Einstein and Gogo. And um, so, firstly, Sue Collings, nurse manager, Dry July, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Everybody, please jump on board and support the Alfred's campaign with Dry July. It's not only the in-service, it's the out-service, the radiotherapy and the HOC. So please help. What's HOC? That's the Oncology Day Unit. Oh, thank you. And we are trying to raise money to make it a bit more comfortable for patients and their families. Good effort. Hey, and uh, Stem Cell, Dr Stem Cell, did you enjoy your first show on radiotherapy? Loved it. Going to come back? Am I going to get invited back? Right. Will we invite him back, Eva? I think we'll invite Stemmy back. We need to talk about stem cells. We definitely do. Hey, um, don't forget our radiotherapy, uh, sorry, our Facebook page, Radiotherapy Triple R. Jump on board, like us. We'll be back next week with another action packed show. In the meantime, over to the scientists at Einstein and Gogo, who we love and adore so much, and they're our source of all inspiration and knowledge.